Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Dr. Helen Cheresky. Today we're going to be exploring connectivity. We've had quite a few stories in this series which explore the connectivity between species. But it's not just about the biological and physical connectivity. There's also an impact that a species can have on a people's culture and the connection between them and their land. So, for example, today we're going to be talking about the Pacific salmon. This is just one type of culturally significant fish, which are at the heart of indigenous communities in British Columbia in Canada. And these are key to understanding the complex interrelationships between the people who live there and the place in which they live. It's all mediated by the fish. So a member of one of these communities is scientist Dr. Andrea Reid, who studies indigenous fisheries and who's also a citizen and a member of the Niska First Nation, which is up on the British Columbia Alaska border. She's the principal investigator at the Centre for Indigenous Fisheries at the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia. And there, her job is to work with knowledge keepers, youth and other community members to launch projects that are centred on research that's with and for Indigenous partners across British Columbia. And you'll hear her refer to British Columbia as BC. I started by asking Andrea how the focus on Indigenous fisheries shapes the science that she carries out. The focus on Indigenous fisheries specifically really profoundly changes the way that we approach science because we are identifying our research questions, we're selecting our methodologies, we're we're creating science with a purpose in mind that is to serve the partners that we work with in Indigenous community contexts. And so it, it doesn't mean that we don't, you know, apply Western scientific tools or sometimes Western scientific questions, but it means that we approach them from a place that's really relationship-centered and, and collaborative. So we co-create the science together. Talk to me a little bit about the cultural significance of, of fish in your community and the connection between the fisheries and the people. Sure. In my nation, in the Niska Nation, Salmon are, are central to identity. They figure so closely into our language, our stories, our ceremonies, our practices, our, our law. Salmon are amazing fish that are truly culture defining throughout their entire range on all sides of the Pacific Rim. I mean, similar to Atlantic salmon in many ways, there are so many people in this world that identify as salmon people and they are truly incredible creatures because they come from freshwater systems that wouldn't have the productivity to support these organisms if they weren't anadromous, if they weren't migratory and made their way out to our oceans to feed as much as they can, get as big as they possibly can before they come back to our rivers historically in in the millions. Let's just pick up on that word anadromous, because I think that that's not a familiar word to lots of people. It is a great word. Tell us specifically what that means. Anadromous is a migratory behavior where fish are born in freshwater systems. They work their way out into saltwater systems, marine systems, um, where those are their, their feeding grounds. And then they return to freshwaters back to spawning grounds, in some cases, directly back to where they were born to bring about that next generation of fish. 
And it's an astonishing thing, isn't it? Because it sounds easy to a human until you think about how different freshwater and saltwater are that, you know, to survive in saltwater, fish need all these mechanisms to deal with the salt and then they can just come up a river and move into freshwater. And it's an astonishing physiological achievement, isn't it? Absolutely. They have to go under incredible osmoregulatory shifts in order to make this lifestyle, this life cycle possible. But effectively, when we're talking about osmoregulation, it's really about how fish are interacting with the watery world around them and how many salts they're taking in and managing within their body. And so they have to undergo some pretty profound changes, but it means that they also do incredible things as they move from one place to the other. So not only are they they transporting these waves of nutrients between nutrient-rich environments in the oceans to nutrient-poor environments in fresh waters, but they are remarkable in some of them migrating, you know, over a thousand kilometers in their lifetime, sometimes 1500 kilometers and doing so often while sustaining injuries from predators or having to navigate this gauntlet of threats from, from fisheries activities to, to climate change impacts. They have to move through so much potential stressor and some of them arrive on their spawning grounds missing their caudal fin or with their brain visible. And it's just an incredible signal of how much their biology drives them to do this incredible physical feat. So could you just take us, just for clarity, could you take us all the way through from an egg, a fish egg, when that, you know, spawns and you get a baby fish, just give us an overview of the fish's lifetime after that. So for Pacific salmon, there are multiple species of salmon. So I'll just give the, the the scientist caveat that they all do slightly different things. So I'll be a bit of a generalist here. Say we're talking about a sockeye salmon, which are one of my favorites. Sockeye, when they hatch from eggs in our, our creeks and streams and sometimes lakesides, they emerge as, as tiny little fry, and their, their very first migration is up to the water's surface where they fill their swim bladder that makes them really wonderful floaters uh, moving forward in their lives. And as they begin to grow, sockeye will rear in fresh waters for about a year, turning into little smolts and getting ready to make their way downriver out towards the ocean. And as they get to those estuaries where we're shifting from fresh waters to the ocean, they have to pause and undergo some, some crazy osmoregulatory changes in, in those environments and get ready for that big shift. And then they work their way out into the oceans where they will spend often two or three years coming back as adults. And so having to pause again at those estuaries as they as they home back to their natal rivers and then they undergo that osmoregulatory shift again. And what's fascinating is they completely stop feeding at that moment when they re-enter freshwater systems and they use all of the all of the nutrients that they've accrued in the ocean to power those remaining hundreds or a thousand plus kilometers home to, to where they were born. And that last bit, those are the famous images we see of salmon kind of jumping up rivers and, you know, bears swiping at them and that kind of thing. So that's the, in a way, that's the drama at the end of this life. But the point is they have to get back to the top in order to spawn for the cycle to start all over again. 
That's exactly right. And they are interestingly semiparous, meaning they have just one go at having these eggs and bringing about the next generation before they perish. And they become nutrients that, that feed their young in the future. So that is their beautiful, poetic kind of life cycle in a nutshell. It's fascinating, like you say, but I think it's an idea that may not be familiar to many listeners. So this idea of salmon moving nutrients around, just to unpick that for us a little bit. Where, are the, where do the nutrients start and, and how do they arrive in the new environment? Well, there's actually a lot that we don't know about what salmon do in the open ocean. But one thing that we're sure of is that they're out there and they're eating a whole range of, of organisms and a favorite being krill. And krill are a big part of their diet and a big part of where specifically sockeye get those carotenoids that help them turn bright red, like you were saying, as they work their way upriver. So carotenoids are these pigments that can be yellows and oranges and reds and, and organisms like salmon don't make them for themselves. They need to take them from the environment, but that's what gives them the colour that we're familiar with. That's exactly right. And so they are out in the ocean eating all those krill and lots of other young fish and insects and plankton of different kinds and then they when they bring themselves up river they're in effect bringing all that they've consumed nutrient wise up into those freshwater watersheds where then they transfer those nutrients to say they're eaten by an eagle or they're eaten by human those nutrients are then getting passed on to these other segments of the food web and a really important part of this conversation is these these predators that rely on salmon from wolves to to bears they're often pulling up these salmon out of the river and into the forest and we can see those pulses of nutrients apparent within the forest themselves and so often people in this part of the world talk about forests as salmon forests so this is you know the the salmon is actually acting as fertilizer for the forest as well as food for the animals that's exactly right and your community and your culture, this is not just a, you're not just taking fish, it's a collaboration or a participation in, in the cycle of life here. So could you describe how the humans fit into this salmon cycle? In my context, in the Niska Nation, we have a fisheries and wildlife department that has been in operation for three decades now, and they have been incredibly active in monitoring salmon as they come up river so that we can make really informed decisions about how many we can take, when we can take them, what species they belong to, all that kind of thing. And they also operate pretty incredible technology on our main river, the Nass River, also called Lism's. Side note that it's called Lism's because that means murky water. And that's in recognition of the water being so filled with fish, specifically ulican, another kind of anadromous fish, that it's hard to see through. Wow. And so this this river is is an exceedingly productive one where salmon and ulican return every year after year, sustaining the Niska since time immemorial. They are a big part of our decision making in terms of how we care for the river and what actions we take within the entire system. But it's really the Niska Fisheries and Wildlife Department that's doing incredible work on the water for salmon, kind of carrying on a tradition of 
looking out for fish in our waters that that really does go back millennia where different clans within my nation are associated and are responsible for different specific areas within our territory. And those are areas that are cared for by those family groups and that they control kind of who has access, who can go fishing, when they can go fishing. And so it becomes pretty evident that this is a really active form of management that's been practiced for a very long time, even if early colonizers didn't recognize that indigenous peoples here and around the world were and are active stewards and caretakers of these waters and of these fish. Always when we share these stories, there's this dual thing going on. And often like yours, you know, there's these great stories of reconnection of people rediscovering knowledge or experiences or, you know, something to connect to in the natural environment. And at the same time, at the moment, always there's this parallel story, which is like, oh, but the ecology is suffering, right? The state of the natural world is decreasing at the same time as there are these stories of rediscovery. So what's the status of the salmon? Are they healthy populations? What's going on? If we compare populations here to others in BC, we see that Nass River salmon are comparatively doing quite well. But if we look at those trends within this system over time, we do see that there are notable, important declines that we need to be paying attention to. We still have decently strong returns, but there's so much concern here about how climate change, how commercial fisheries activities, how other stressors in in the aquatic environment affect fish coming back here. How much of the decline in salmon is due to just competition for more people wanting to take more fish out of the system rather than exactly how it's managed? Well, I think today we're at a point where there are these sectors all vying for for the remaining or the last fish. But it's really important to look here at the backdrop that this is set against. If we look at the 1850s populations of wild salmon, we're at one-sixth of what those were. And so we're at a point where, yes, salmon are in a tough place, stressed by multiple stressors competing and accumulating all at once, but they wouldn't be in such a vulnerable position if not for the really endless removal by commercial fishing operations over the last 150 odd years, but really the the creation of canneries and the mass removal of, of salmon has been really devastating to where they are now that puts them in this precarious position where fish for one person means no fish for another. And it's a really interesting dynamic that we've reached. My my entire PhD was centered on Pacific salmon across BC's three largest salmon-bearing rivers, the Fraser, the Skeena, and the Nass River, the Nass being home of the Niska. And through that work, I got to apply ecological questions and methodologies looking at salmon migrations and how they cope with multiple stressors, while at the same time getting to speak with indigenous knowledge holders across BC about how salmon shape language and story and ceremony and practice and and law. As I was doing some of those interviews, I had a number of them remark that they just couldn't believe that people come from away, come to their waters 
to fish and don't they have fish where they're from and i just think there's something pretty remarkable when you when you zoom out that fishing really does become a tourist activity and industry that can be really important for for many i'm not trying to discount that but looking at the dynamics of who has rights and whose rights need to be protected first that's a huge question that needs to be applied as we make these decisions about who has access and why one of the things about a fish like the salmon which has such a long migration you know it lives in both in freshwater and out in the open ocean is that the places where stresses can touch it are many. It's not just that you have to worry about your local area and perhaps local pollution or local fishing practices, but there's this whole long chain of the salmon's life cycle that that is not local to you. I mean, do you feel out of control in the sense that there's only so much you can do in your local area? Or do you feel that, you know, if you share this knowledge more widely, you can connect up the cycle, right? You can help with the stresses all the way through the salmon's life cycle and not just the ones that are local to you? Yeah, it's a great question. And certainly migratory animals are among the most at risk in so many circumstances because of there are just so many opportunities for increased chance of encountering one of those risks or barriers as they move along this essential path to continuing their species. But in the case of of salmon, and given the work that I've done really really centered on cumulative effects and how multiple stressors impact these fish together, the alleviation of any one stressor is ultimately a very good thing for salmon. And I think we all have a role to play in helping improve the, the state of salmon in a given area. You know, salmon have been with us for so long. And if we do our part to give the salmon a break, we're going to see them be resilient. And we see evidence of that in certain systems, in certain instances. Wild salmon are indeed herding across much of this province and throughout much of their range. And it can feel incredibly disempowering to know that climate change is devastating for these cold water fish. But if we can remove some of those other compounding stressors, there is good evidence to think that some can begin to adapt, can begin to shift, and that we can work with those changes as people have been doing for generations. How much does the changing salmon affect the predators that feed on them and the forest behind them? Yeah, they are so important to, to so many organisms in the food web. And so they are considered both an ecological keystone species as well as a cultural keystone species. So they're disappearance in areas has profound ripple effects ecologically and culturally for all that are connected to them. Many fellow scientists working working in the in the realm of bears and how they're doing wolves and how they're doing are finding interconnections between their status and their access to salmon. So I would say that the evidence for those interconnections is is pretty strong. So just before we get on to talking a little bit about the future then I don't eat fish, but I know that the people who do, they it's often in a restaurant, you might see something that says, you know, wild Pacific salmon on sale in a restaurant, I don't know, in San Francisco, perhaps somewhere that's hundreds or thousands of miles away from where the salmon came from. What is your advice to people who live in places where there are not salmon, who see things like that, who are offered things like that to, to buy and to eat? What do you say to them about whether they should eat them or how they should think about it? 
I think it's really important to center sustainability within this conversation and to look for certifications of whether fisheries are are considered sustainable or not. Not to say that those are perfect, but they do give us at least an opening place to begin this conversation, to think about what the implications are of those fishing activities. I think that it really depends on the decisions that you're faced with. If you're set on eating salmon and your options are to support a wild salmon fishery versus supporting farmed salmon, I think that like everyone needs to evaluate for themselves what what those consequences mean. But farmed salmon on the on the BC coast, those are almost exclusively Atlantic salmon that have been taken into these waters because they're more conducive to to farming activities with very real implications for wild salmon populations and research groups studying those impacts are drawing some pretty clear lines between infectious disease transmission from Atlantics to wild Pacific salmon. And so, you know, when we pay for something, we're we're effectively voting for it. We're supporting it. And so we need to take that into consideration as we make these kinds of choices. But I think we're often not faced with with easy choices in, in this domain. I I've been vegetarian for two decades. Um very recently stepping away from it to eat salmon here in my nation and to eat food from this river. Now that I am living here and getting to be part of this community and part of this place, it's transformative for me to be able to know who the fishers are, to know the river, to know the system, to know the fishery and trust that I can eat this without huge, huge impacts in the way that when I buy from, say, a grocery store or a restaurant, it's a shot in the dark and it's very hard to follow those kind of chains of implications. So I think the more that you can know your food and know the people who've gotten it for you or you're that person, I think the better. So let's look to the future then. There are lots of stresses in the natural world at the moment and the salmon are an important part of that, but a small part of a much larger system. But when it comes to the salmon specifically, how optimistic are you about the future of of salmon for your nation? The salmon that your nation looks after, manages, eats. What's your level of optimism? I'm optimistic and I'm also I'm also worried, of course, because I'm optimistic that salmon people are always gonna do their utmost to improve the well-being of salmon because we are so mutually interdependent on one another that what we need is a future where both can thrive. And I think that's what many of us are working towards. But of course, I'm worried because the activities that are happening in our waterways around the world is on such a scale that, of course, the future for them is is precarious. But when I put a similar kind of question to to those elders across BC, they were hopeful about the future of the fish and they were hopeful about the importance of our individual choices. They were hopeful that if we were to collectively give the salmon a break, many of them shared this sentiment that if all sectors were to pull back from fishing activities for multiple salmon generations, that we would see a remarkable return. And I just think that there's such value in knowing that our individual choices matter, our collective choices matter, and it's empowering to think about how we can apply those in the spaces that we live. 
And just finally then, if, what, what's, the, what's the ideal to aim for going forward in terms of how we create a better future for this species? What's the ideal way of getting there, in your opinion? How do we do this? I think this comes back to kind of that earlier notion of, of values and, and how we build our, our science and our fisheries decisions. For a very long time, mainstream industrial fisheries have been centered on this idea of maximum sustainable yield of what's the most we can take before we have precipitous impacts on a species. But that's no way to, to healthfully manage a, a fish and a fishery. I think we really need to think about how we build up our, our frameworks and our decision-making models to really center on abundance and to think about what does it mean to have what, what do the fish need to have a healthy future for themselves? And we work from that as the baseline from which we make decisions, not, not the inverse. Thank you to Andrea Reid, the Principal Investigator at the Centre for Indigenous Fisheries in the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia. It was really great to talk to Andrea and to get a very different perspective on how we do science and how important that species is for her Indigenous community and to really investigate how collaborative research with Indigenous communities can be so much more productive. Next time around, we'll be exploring the future of sustainability. Just a small topic then. I'm Helen Cheresky and Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. The producer is Izzy Clark. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>